When life throws you a curveball, how are you going to handle adversity? Welcome to the Fearless Mindset Podcast, where you're about to go on a journey as I interview security, business, and entertainment leaders on what it takes to stay fearless. I'm your host, Mark Ludlow, and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Ludlow with the Fearless Mindset Podcast. And today we have us joining us is Gary Curtis from United Kingdom, England. Gary, thank you for joining us. How are you doing, my friend? Hello there, Mark. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, we all know from seeing your LinkedIn pages and stuff, and uh, you've been a very busy man for the last, how many years have you been in the private sector? <laughs> well, I, first, um, I first left the Royal Marines in 94 and joined the London Fire Brigade um, for a little while. But even on my days off, I was doing a little bit of security work from, say, like 95. But to go into it full-time that I have been now, hostile environments, has been since 2003 permanently. 2003. Wow. Yeah. Okay, 2003. I got out of the Marine Corps in 2002. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Oh, Okay. So you've got a firefighting background, EMT medical background from a firefighter, then the Royal Marines yeah. aspect of it. You joined it together, and then you became a very valuable commodity in the security industry, and you went all over the world doing all kinds of yeah. stuff as a media consultant, right? That's right. I mean, to start off with, I just um, I started off with a PSD crew. Um, I was actually at a fire in Kensington, and my phone was going off in my pocket. Early days of the mobile phones, um, the phone was going off. We put the fire out, and I looked at the number. I didn't recognise it. I called back later on. Yeah, and it was one of my friends out in Baghdad, and he's like, "Guys, what are you doing?" And I said, "Well, as it happens, just putting the fire out." But <laughs> what about you? <laughs> he said, um, "I'm over in Baghdad. Can you come over?" I said, "What do you mean? Can I come over?" He said, "Look, they need people out here ASAP to help with a military effort. I think it was the April." Um, yeah, I think it was about April, April or May. Um, so the, the conflict, the troops had pretty much, the, the US troops had pretty much just rolled into Baghdad, I think, that month. And um, I flew out. I put my notice in to leave the fire brigade, and I flew out. Uh, got on the ground, doing a PSD work. And I, I remember the first part of that year when we got there, it was very, very quiet. There was a lot of jubilation by the Iraqis that the American forces, the, the coalition was actually there. Saddam was gone or out of power and people were happy. But I think it was Ramadan that year that a huge uh, VBID detonated at either the Turkish embassy and a truck bomb at the UN. I think it was outside the UN building. And it was a lot, a lot of casualties and the place just imploded from there. And obviously we started becoming targets, as did you guys. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was, it was quite horrendous. I mean, when I look back at some of the diaries in that now, because I wrote a diary, if it, if, if it wasn't for the diaries and people said to me, like, you're going to have like 150 attacks a day, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But when, you, when I look back, it's like, <laughs> was that really going on? VBIDs, this has been attacked. They've been shot down. They've lost somebody. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Um, but, hey, I'm still here. I'm still smiling. Um, obviously, a lot of people are not. God bless them. 
uh, always raising a glass for them. Uh, it, it was tough times, but dare I say it, they was for me. They were good times. It's, uh, I found my groove. So that was the first wave of the invasion of Iraq. That was when uh, Eric Prince had Blackwater there, paramilitary there on the ground because they didn't. If I remember reading his book correctly, they didn't have enough military equipment to even support yeah. the, the invasion. And yeah. so you were probably working with a lot of Blackwater operators at the time I too, see, right? Well, um, when I was doing the PSD side, we used to see Blackwater before they used to go down the route Irish and hit the, hit the ground, and they was in there MRAPs or whatever they was the bird cage things and all the armored car. And then I knew a couple of people that were doing more like the SF role, cutting about unshaven, shitty old clothes, nothing on show. Cars um, had like batting window screens and all the rest of it, just normal cars. And uh, off we would go out into the city to conduct recce's, uh, to go and have a look at venues, etc., etc. Work hand in glove with the military. And we were, and in all the time we was there, it's very, very successful uh, MO that we carried out. The only time that we actually got attacked was when we used armoured cars going into the the armoured four by fours, and uh, I thought, Shh, don't like that. Get me in a, a crappy old Datsun, running around. I'm happy, you know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I uh, we see they was all out there, and what we found as well, and I think we've. All future conflicts, large-scale conflicts, is that's going to be the way they're going to work now, is the military will conduct with the the hard fighting and they'll have civilians scooping up behind. Right. What do you see happening in the theatre out there right now? I hear it's really dry, not much going on as far as contracting work overseas in the Middle East right now. There's not much happening. What are you hearing? From, what, from your side, there's a lot of people. A lot of the countries that we go to, obviously, they want to do joint ventures. So the Iraqis wanted to take a lot of control, and they would have a couple of expats that would go in as country manager and all the rest of it. And not that it's lost its way. There's some good guys, but the standard, the professionalism to what was out there, I believe, has fallen by the wayside in a, in a big, big way. You know. Um, it's look. We did we open a can of worms? There's the question: Is it? Did we cause all this? You know, um, we did, we didn't. Whatever. At the end of the day, I'm working. It gives me work. Um, but like the IRA said in Northern Ireland, is they're in it for the long haul. You know, a military can't sustain, can't keep paying, can't keep doing that. You know, they live there, these people. It's their country. They're there for the long haul. They don't mind waiting. And I think that's what you're going to be up against. Trump has just announced that he's uh, going to be pulling troops out of uh, of Afghanistan. Um, I think we're going to see a massive surge of violence out there from Taliban, ISIS, other people that are on the up and up. Um, yeah, it's... I say we... You're always going to get people wanting to be in charge when there's a void in power. You know, someone always wants to be charged, in charge. Um, they don't like them. They don't like them. So they want to be in charge and they're going to fight them. And it just, two of them throw it, you know. It's, uh, right. It, it's, I think it's bad times ahead. Not so much I think for, so. I think you're right. 
that's what I'm hearing from some of the top generals. They've been speaking on CNBC and different news networks on what they what they're thinking is going to happen. You know, if we do pull all the troops out, we'll have another vacuum like we did in Iraq, and ISIS will raise its head. And about ISIS, you were you were there on the ground with the refugees, right, dealing with ISIS with news crews, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm, um, the thing with ISIS, well, and Al Qaeda. When you're doing media tasks, we go out and more often than not, we're not armed, you know. And obviously, being ex-military, you can't be a combatant, even though in your your military head's telling you you need a weapon, you need this, you need you can't. You, you you've got to. Well, you are professional. You remain professional, and you've got to remain level-headed, so that the journalists, when all the shit's going down, you're the bloke sat in the trench there, smiling and getting on the phone and giving a sit rep to somebody and all the rest of it, and telling them, just wait there, just wait, just listen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's you, the calm, uh, as you see with a lot of the videos I've got as well that are out. Is um, you've got to remain calm, but yes, you you are the professional. You are the guy that's been getting paid for when the wheel comes off, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the wheel comes off a lot, a lot of times, especially sure. uh, as I say against ISIS in Mosul, was probably one of the only times since two thousand and three that I've actually actually had to fight, you know, because to be a prisoner, that's. Uh, doesn't matter if you're a journalist or not, you are going to be in an orange spoiler too. You are going to become headlines. And the idea with news is to get the news, not be the news, you know, and uh, we do whatever we can. Um, I'm not proud about that. Would I do it again? Uh, yeah, in them circumstances that we was in, absolutely. It, it, I'm afraid that's what you get paid to do. You get paid to do that. Um, but ultimately, you do go unarmed. Um, and it's all about having a good rapport with the people that you're embedded with, you know, some journalists haven't, how can I put it? I mean, I'd say 99.9% of the journalists I work with were absolutely fantastic. And I'm, I kid you not, I mean that really brilliant people. And they listen to you as the consultant, but you've also got a couple of journalists that maybe have covered a couple of wars that anything that you say doesn't matter because they've covered this war and that war. So they know everything. Uh, so that they can be, can be, not all of them, can be a couple that are a pain in the ass, And then you've got other people that will try and push, push too much. And you're like, no, just wait, wait. Um, so being embedded, you you basically become military again. You are the soldier there without the weapon. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 for me, it's a privilege that, as I said to you, it's a privilege for me that people have that much trust and faith in you to put their life in your hands. Uh, you know, it's your decisions whether they live or die now. It goes without saying for, as I say, 15 years of doing this work, apart from in Mosul again, which I'll explain later, um, I haven't lost anybody, had anyone injured. And it's not about that. It's not about that. You don't use that as a medal and like a, the crown look at me. You ultimately need to get people into trouble to a degree for them to get the story, to get all the bang-bangs, to get all the everything that's going on, the atmospherics and whatever, and then get them out safely as well. Um, and you've got to know where, where that line is, where that judgment call is, you know, 
And I've done it many a time. I'll be saying to the crews, right, guys, you're going to get you out here. I'm going to go forward with, with this lot, have a little look. I'll come back and get you if it's okay. I'll come back and say, nah, you ain't going up there, not a chance. And uh, simple as that. Yes, some of them can sulk, but once they've been there a while and they get to see what war's about, um, they do trust you a lot. And as I say, a lot of them become good friends as well, the journalists. It's uh, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Sure. Now, Gary, let me dive into this uh, question I have just hit my head a little bit. Uh, when you say you're embedded and you're you're getting shot at, yeah. What is your what is your tool? What is your equipment that you use? Are you on a phone getting intel? Are you calling well, in military on your phone, or what is your strategy? Usually, usually, when we go on the ground on an embed, I will carry. I'll have a satellite phone. I will okay. always carry a basher phone. So that's just a little handheld, a little Ericsson. Get a local sim. Make sure that's carded up, fully charged, and um, got loads and loads of credit on it. Um, GPS. Obviously, trauma kit, which is a, a gold grab bag, not a backpack, because you're getting through foxholes in and out of vehicles. You just need something quick, um, but enough that you can sustain life and keep someone alive. Um, and body armor, helmet, day glow sticks, uh, carabiners. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much all, all the stuff that you're going with. Now, as I say, in Mosul, when we got embedded with the special forces, uh, Major Hassan got shot through the leg and I patched him up. Um, obviously managed to all the clients were in hard cover on that first patched him up and that that one act broke down barriers they was all like all the other special forces guys see ya and that got us the New York Times to be embedded then there on end we, we just pretty much had a, a, a run of what we wanted to do for the entire of the Mosul conflict and the reporters that I was working with and the photographers I believe went on to win a Pulitzer Prize one of them's got a best selling book uh, and all the rest of it. Now, I don't take credit for that, and I don't want to take credit right. for that. Right. The stuff that they saw was down to the consultant getting them there and looking after them. And, uh, yeah, that's, that makes me proud, very proud. Absolutely. You kept them safe. And so you're with the reporter on the ground getting shot at who yeah. was covering whatever special units was from that whatever country that was from. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, there's times once... Like I say, your job is not to be a combatant. Uh, there was a couple of situations we went into the west of the city and we actually went with the assault team, which is there. That was because of the guys that I had and the training they had received and the rapport that I had with them, I felt confident enough to take those guys forward on that. Um, the last thing you need is someone falling to pieces on you and, and, and saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, and then you're stuck, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you needed to have that months of rapport beforehand to get to that stage where we was. Um, so we went on with the assault teams and they got some fantastic stuff. Um, it was hairy. It was lively. We've got a lot. It's not just all about me uh, all singing, all dancing, because I'm not, not, not by a long shot. But you do make the correct calls. But... There's also an element of luck. You know, we've had VBIDs go off outside the compound that we was in. There's mortars that have come in, as you'll see on the photographs in, um, on my social media. Um, sniper getting shot at. <laughs> I, I, if I got a dollar for every time I've been shot at, I, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here now. I'd be, have a lovely villa. I'd be probably buying Trump's place. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. you were 
So the special forces units, they knew who you were because you're covering your principal, who was a journalist, TV reporter, and they knew your background. They knew your your street creds or field creds. And so they had that mutual respect for you. It becomes quite clear, no matter what you do and how much you try to uh, to play everything down. I mean, again, I was looking after a, a huge U.S. newspaper out in the Ukraine. Um, I stayed out there for the entire, pretty much the entire year, 2014. So whilst the reporters would be writing back at Donetsk, I would use that downtime, or whenever they're transitioning out and another reporter comes in, I would use that downtime to go up to the front line to live with the soldiers on the front line for a day overnight, talk to them, um, and then come back out. And then they they like look at you like, what's all that about? And again, it's twofold. One, I want them to have the confidence in me. And two, if for any reason we need to go down there quick, I know that the checkpoints are going to recognise my face and get me through all the time, which, which ultimately happened a lot. And a lot of um, journalists from different backgrounds would actually say to like, Gary, can you take us in? Gary, can you take us in? Which I did. Um, but they're not stupid either. All the people you're with, um, I was with Andrew. Um, we met the commander. He, he's dead now. His, his nickname was Givy, and his uh, two IT was called Motorola, and they've both been killed um, since the battles. Um, but we turn up down uh, Donetsk Airport. So he says, Givy says to Andrew, he said, so who are you? He says, oh, my name is Andrew. I'm the reporter. I do the writing and all the rest of it. And he says to the other guy, and who are you? He says, well, I'm the photographer. And he comes <laughs> up smashed me on the side he went and you you are special forces huh I said no I'm a photographer <laughs> and he was saying, oh photographer he said where is your camera so I get out my iPhone I was like I've got my iPhone and like sharp as anything he said come on we go to the airport and as we walked in I could hear the drone so you listen you get so attuned to all the different noises around you and as we are walking in I could hear the drone so I said to Andrew and a photographer there's some uh, guys drones up quick as a flash this, this Ukrainian or Russian come up to me and went, hey, photographer, see fucking drone, eh? Very good. I was like, So um, they, they, they pretty much know. They know. Yeah, it's good. Now, how many firefights were you involved with with ISIS out there with the different uh, clients you had in the media and all that? Are you over 100 of them? Wow. Oh, wow. Daily. Okay, daily. Okay. Vehicles getting bumped, whether it be uh, not so much just small arms fired, it'd be RPGs that could have been VBIDs or driven incident, our proximity. Um, you'll see, again, when you look at on my social media and you go through the video clips, you'll just, yeah, it, 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 yeah it was crazy. It was crazy out there. You know, but with everything, the momentum, keep it going if it's safe to do so, not stupidly. Um, I'm looking out you- for so you're out there hanging out with your journalists, and next to you, you know, you grab your journalists and you put them in the foxhole with you. You're covering them from yeah. bullets, and then you yelled at one of the special forces guys, "Hey, give me that, give me that Beretta, give me that nine millimeter," and then he throws you a pistol, and you're shooting back. Is that kind of how it goes? No, no. What what basically happened on one occasion was um, as we was going into New Ground West West Mosul, um, we was in about an eight vehicle convoy. And we was about third or fourth back. As the, the roads were getting narrow and narrow and narrow, so we was pushed into a choke point, you know. Uh, they know that as well. Uh, a lot of the cars had these banged up 
gates leading into a garden or a little driveway. There was VBIDs that were left in situ, not all of them detonated. Um, and then we done a left, and as we turned left, we had the berm, which was about 50 metres in front. Beyond that was probably about 100, 150 metres again was the minaret and the mosque. And then, it, so we, we come down here, this little road, turn left, so our Humvee and another Humvee to the left is facing what I call this in the kill run, in the kill zone, and then another two Humvees are turned right, and we couldn't obviously go forward and right because of the Humvees. We couldn't go back because it, it, it's too tight. So I sat there, and um, the, the photographer went to get out, and I said, "No, just wait there." The special forces commander got out and just walked around nonchalantly to talk to the locals. He was only out a couple of minutes, so I sort of. Uh, I got up into the gun turret. We had the M19 grenade launcher. And I got in the turret and I was just kept down looking through the gap. And I thought, if I was one of them, I would take us on, you know. And then sure enough, like, bing, off of the turret. Then it hit the Humvee to the left. Then it hit the Humvee to the left again. Then the mirror, mirror on our vehicle that went. I was like, okay. Well, the guys having pot shots. The guys out on the ground have all run for cover. The civilians there run for cover. And... Uh, we started taking more rounds. The 50 cal to my left starts letting rip one of, one of the, the Iraqi special forces guy. There's no one on the M19. And I said to James, like, you stay here. You need to stay here. Do not get out of this vehicle unless I tell you to do so. And I'm, I'm now thinking, he's trying to put suppressive fire down for an RPG team to move in. Like, they're going to come up near that berm, pop up, and they can wig index. And to get out into fire with a sniper that was working because he was just aim shots wherever he wanted on, on the vehicle. And uh, I was like, okay. And that's the only time that I actually said, look, so um, ask the boss through my fix. I said, ask the boss, shall I engage? And he was like, yeah, I'll just jump to the 19 and stop the attack. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and the attack stopped pretty rapidly. <laughs> so, now, how many hours would these attacks go with ISIL or? These different terrorism cells. I mean, they go for hours or twenty minutes. It varies. Yeah, yeah, they can do. I mean, it's just a, it's just no rush. It's just so chilled. It's, it's it's quite crazy when everyone was not blasé. So long in the tooth with with war. As I say, you used to hear you knew like you could, the different explosions. You had launches and mortars. You small arms fire. You knew their drones would be up and dropping forty mil grenades on it on us, and. Uh, it was just so chilled and, and whatever. And like battles would start going into dark o'clock and then it'd be quite reasonably quiet. We'd just do our pop shots through, uh, through darkness. Then you would have a call to prayer. A call to prayer. And from, <laughs> what I, from what I could make out, from mosque to mosque, it was almost like they was having a bit of a slagging match. Like, now we've got this part of the town back and ISIS is saying, you're not going to get this part back. And uh, that's what I presume was going on. And then the, the, for the rest of the whole day, during daylight, the place would just go bananas. Absolutely crazy. So, so yeah. how many days were you out there with SF groups with your reporter? Were you out there for months, a year, just covering them? And out, um, we go backwards and forwards. So we, we would join in for an operation. So if they was going to clear an area, we would get permission to go in with them. They'd be like, yeah, of course, come with us. And we would go in and, and do that part of a mission um, because their resupply that they had going on there was amazing for food, ammunition, water. 
they they was bang on. They was brilliant. It's probably one of the best that I've ever seen anywhere in any military. They was boom, boom, boom all the time. And the same with Kazivax, getting people out of there. And that was a road move, not helicopters, road move. They was good. They was very, very good. Uh, but they learned quickly. They learned very, very quickly. They had to. Uh, so the Humvees that were taking casualties out or doing resupplies, we would jump in with them if we needed to bug out. And uh, we would then get back to where our vehicles were, which would be like a, an ERV somewhere further back, a few kilometres, drive back to Erbil. The reporters would then go through and do their reporting, do whatever had to be done. Um, and I would just go down, find a gym in Erbil, do some training in a gym, do my reports, get in touch with who I had to be in touch with. Not only just myself, um, other organisations, NBC, Sky News, BBC, CNN, everybody had their own consultants with them. So we would either like collectively join up if we wasn't out on the ground and have a chat. What do you reckon? What do you think? Blah, blah, blah. And we'd bounce ideas off each other and let them know this is what the new MO is. This is what they're doing. It's like when the drones, when they picked the drones up, when they started dropping bombs on us, like the, the grenades, it's like, okay, fellas, <laughs> don't matter where you go. Just get into hard cover. You hear that drone, get into hard cover because they're just dropping grenades everywhere. And uh, it caused a bit of a problem for the advance going into the west of the city for a while, for a good long while. But yeah, um, I don't ever give credit to terrorists for obvious reasons. But what I will say is them buggers, they fought like fuck. Excuse my French. They weren't giving up anything anything and I kid you not they the Iraqis had to fight for every square inch of that city you know and when it comes to take the old city uh, all of us got together again us me and the other consultants and said what do you reckon so you're gonna have to level it it's the only way they're gonna have to level the place simple as that and that's exactly what they did it's the only way they could move forward it's just boom 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 it was uh, a beautiful old city that's no longer really right now, what was your protocol on the ground with the uh, your principal? Was it the like in the state side when you have a principal, they teach you in EP school, cut, get them off the X, cover evac, get them out of there. But you're in the heat, yeah. You have incoming from every direction. That's the you thing. Have, you have the X, get them off the X, you get them out of the car. Then where do you go? Yeah, that's the, the, that's the, the thing. All of the time when you go forward. Doing, and I don't mean this in a big-headed way by a long shot because everybody's got their own little groove. Doing the media security is me. I'm very comfortable with that. I'm happy with that. I've got a good rapport doing it. Excellent. That's that's my thing. So you get some guys that come from a CP background and exactly what you say, they get bumped, Poor, get out of here, out of Dodge. Right? We can't do that all of the time. You know, you right. might have to get into hardcover and wait. Um, there's a series of photographs for the New York Times um, and you'll see on, on there there was a food distribution going on so I was there with the writer and the photographer uh, mortars came in and I had loads and loads of casualties again all of that's on my social media different pictures um, a guy bleeding out got a tawny cone on him he survived uh, a guy that was brought out bare chested and I just saw the pepper, the whole peppers in his hand. He was gargling and all the rest of it. I was feeling that, trying to patch him up. And his wife was right. saying to me, perfect English, please let him live. Please make him live. Perfect English. And I said, yeah, yeah, be fine. And he died in my hands. 
Um, so I said to the guys, put him on the Humvee. She said, is he okay? Is he okay? And I had to tell her a lie. I said, look, yeah, he'd be fine. But he was already dead at that mm. stage. Um, a little boy got handed to me. And as I picked him up, I, as my hand went on his side, my hand went inside him and like his, all his guts had spilled out. And uh, I pushed whatever guts were outside back as best I can, got his jumper and sort of rolled his jumper over. And I placed him into the Humvee. Uh, back of the, not Humvee, in the back of this pickup truck with dead people and, and casualties. And he actually lived that little boy. There's a great picture of him. Um, and I think the photographer won an award for that. Um, but that at the same time, as well as doing that, even after the attack, and I say to the guys, you've got to get into hard cover. I'm going to do a little bit out here to try and help these. You know, they're like, can we come out with you? You've got to make that call. Do they come out? Do they not come out? My job is to look after you. That is it. Not to be getting involved with casualties. My job is to look after you. That's it. People are dying, they're dying. So be it. And there's been many, many a time and I've walked away as well. I've had to walk away. Um, but this particular time, because of who we was with, again, with the Iraqi Special Forces and their command element, uh, I said, listen, if I come out, do what you've got to do. But if I hear, hear any launches and say you get inside straight away, you do it. As I was working on casualties, I'm actually saying, so if you need to go in, go through that door. As we're working on, if we need to go, go in that door and go to the next casualty. If we need to move, get behind that vehicle, go into there. You know, and you're constantly like that. Um, but, you know, the journalist, just like us, they pick up on every battle. Every war that you go to gets its own drumbeat. You get to learn. And that doesn't mean that you can be, oh, they're going to finish firing in, in five minutes, let's get cocky and all the rest of it. Absolutely not. You know, absolutely not. But every battle, every war that I've been to does pick up its own little drumbeat, you know, in Ukraine after the grad attacks, the multi-launches, multi I'd hear them. So I'd just put the clients down into a building and the rockets were coming from the north side, so we'd be on the south side. You know, we'd be on the north side as well, so the rockets came in and hit on the opposite side of a building. and. Uh, yeah, you, you knew after that grad attack, they was reloading and there was your time to move. Um, as I say, call to prayer out in Libya. You'd know about dark o'clock in the morning, it was going to kick off after, you know, and then the next call to prayer will go quiet again so you get a time to move. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. But every, every war has its own different type of drumbeat and as soon as you learn that not to get cocky with it but it's it's an indicator it, it, it gives you a way to to move to work and do what you got to do gary can you give me an example of any time during that time span when you're working against maybe isis or maybe in libya dealing kadakti if you're around them that time where <laughs> you were you had the element of fear because the fierce, fearless mindset. I kind of want to tap in your your psyche to find out when you had a, a flash of your life go before you in a moment to yeah. where am I going to make it? You're fifty percent sure you may not, but fifty percent may make it. Do you, you, can't, you have a story you could share about that? I think probably for me, I always carry a high vis panel, only a small piece of high vis high visibility panel. And that is my weapon more often than not. I'll say to, casual, uh, to cl clients, get out, stay there. Or the car, pull over there, just wait. Do not get out of the vehicle. I'm going to walk forward. And I'll get out, and I'll just, as we do, to show that I'm no harm, arms out, and I'll have that, and I'll be waving. 
in my head, my arse is going because you only need to have a, a, a sniper that just thinks, fuck it, I'll, I'll take him out, you know, or a mortal come down or anything like that, even though you're listening. And I'm, I'm waving it about. And everywhere oh. that I've been, that orange flag has saved my life. And flag. Wow. That little flag. And the, the scariest thing from time for me was a place called Slavyansk um, in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian military was just moving in. I had a freelance photographer and a writer, um, Ben and Maria, and I could hear the wheels of a tank as they squeak coming into our immediate area. And we was at the SBU building, which is like their intelligence agency, and Maria wanted to go in and have a look in the building. I said, no, it was probably booby trap. They've lifted, they've bugged out of here quickly. They've probably booby trapped the building. And she said, no, let me have a little look. I said, no. So with that, I've put Ben into this uh, behind these sandbags, not far from the entrance. And as I was talking to Ben, I turned around and Maria was gone. And I was like, where's she gone? He, he said, I think she's gone in the building. And I was like, shit, shit. So, um, at that immediate time around the corner become the tank towards us. Running alongside the tank was all the Ukrainians with their AKs and different weapons. And I've had to come out from behind cover, bearing in mind they're, they're advancing to contact them so that I, they could possibly think oh, I'm enemy. And I was, fuck. So I got my flag and I was going, English, English, press, press, waving this flag. And I'm just looking at the barrel of a tank, which is less than sort of 70 metres from me now with all these guys and that that scared the shit out of me that day, you know. And I was like, and I said, in there, press, press, press. And I ran into the building, grabbed hold of Maria, came out, and sure enough, it was booby-trapped, and they detonated it, blew the top floor up, you know. Um, so that was – there's a classic example of you've got to keep a grip of your principles – and that's why I only like to work with a, t- a, a tight-knit team. These are two different individuals that wanted to t- me to take them down to the front. And one wanted to do one thing, another wanted to do a different. And they're pulling apart. And, yeah, you've got to try and keep control of that. Very, very, very easy to lose control. She was lucky that day. She was lucky. Very lucky. So that was a, a time in your career where you had to overcome a mental challenge, that mental block of yeah. fear. And say, hey, I got to do it. It's now or never. And you just kind of go, I got to over- mentally overcome my mental challenge of life or death. And you got your principle. So it's just, that must be crazy to think, overcome. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a time, really, apart from that, that I weigh up the life and death situation. What I do is I just weigh up, like, how can we do this? How can I do this and get the best result for them? You know, doing the safer way as possible. Uh, the difficult. You, you do a bunch of pre-advancing in your in your strategy and in your, in your daily uh, prepping. Do a yeah, lot of advancing yeah. in your in your I maps. Will, I will talk to if we're embedded. I will talk to the colonel, whoever the boss of that is there, uh, with my translator and and the reporters. Tell them what they want to do. Uh, ask them what their their plan of action is if. They tell you because of OPSEC, obviously. Um, right. And then um, the reporters just say, well, I need to do this. And the other one, they say yes or no. Um, and on that, I would then just come up with uh, 
a quick set of orders to them, really. Okay, guys, if we go in there, this is what we're going to do. If I get injured, you get injured, blah, blah, blah. If the car gets broken, blah. And we just go through all the different types of actions on. But I will do that everywhere. So as soon as I get a team that hires me, we will meet at the hotel. I will ask them what they, their objective is, and we will go through the plan. And I always say to them, I'm here to get you your story. I will get you your story. I will get you that story. However, security will always trump your your story. Oh, good. Good. I mean, if I say we're out of here, we're out of here. No ifs and buts, we're out of here. And uh, I've never had any problems with that. You know. So you said a you definitely set a boundary being a consultant security expert yeah. for them. They respected your professional opinion and they never pushed back on that. Yeah, no, never. There's there's one time I was looking after um, PBS America. We was moving towards Kabani, going towards Kabani, and on the main the moment I think it's the M3, the main road, the M3. It was dark o'clock and an ambulance come tearing past us and it must have just been two minutes in front and it hit another car head on, right? Now, cardinal sin is to stop anywhere. You know, you've got clients in the car, you don't stop. But on this particular time, I said to the driver, pull over. And the reason I did that was purely because, one, I'd seen the accident. Two, I wanted to be seen, because we're going into Kabani now, right, which has obviously just been taken back from ISIS. I wanted to be seen as the guy that's the doctor or the doctor who could have helped there, there and then. So we did what we did, helped the people, and it turns out there were soldiers in the back of the actual uh, the ambulance. And done what they done, stabilised quickly there, only on scene for about five minutes and gone. You know, that was above my remit. Should I have done that right or wrong? People could say that that was wrong because it's not your job. But the reason that I did it. It's because I want my face to be seen when we get to Kabani. People will be, oh, that's, that's the doctor. That's the doctor that helped us. You know, so everything that I do, every action I do, does have another meaning to it. It's not just me saying, oh, the goodness of my heart, I'm going to go and help you. Not at all. There's always a meaning to something else that I do. Um, uh, so whether the clients see that or not, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, all, there's always a secondary meaning to it if I do something, which may be not protocol which ain't very often it's almost like a chess game out in the field you know it's a chess game of science mastering psychology and mastering human behavior and just understanding all those variables that kind of make a life or death situation when you go into places and it's blind when you go to new places and you don't know for me the trick is a lot of smiles a lot of pats on the back shaking hands and all that lot playing yourself down uh, being very passive, um, letting them, whoever they are, think they're the boss in charge, telling the big Englishman or the Americans what to do. Great, great, great. But in my head, I'm thinking, I've got an escape plan. <laughs> I'm going through stuff all the time. What am I going to do? What are we going to do? What if we go there? What if we do this? What if we do that? You know, they can't see that. I'm just all smiling and patting on the back. And But you, you, you don't ever stop working of course you don't that's what you, you're about that's what you get paid to do it may look like you, you're not doing nothing but you're not you, your head's doing a million things at once it's uh it can be quite tiring yeah you're excited about a book you have released here in uh you said december called incoming rounds kind of an autobiography of your stories and your your uh yeah, the book is just called incoming incoming that's okay. it 
that's um, that's it's out at the moment. Um, but we just added a couple more chapters, so you can get the original version on Amazon.co.uk now, or you can get um, the revised edition, which should be out. I hope before just before Christmas or thereafter, which has got some more added chapters and that in it. Um, and that's called Incoming, as I say, on Amazon.co.uk. Um, just uh, that only goes up to 2000 and end of 2016. So all the stuff from Syria, from the Mosul stuff, from Necker Island, Richard Branson after the hurricane, all the, like some of the legal challenges I've been through, which involve my ex, um, all of that stuff. It, there's, uh, there's a whole heap. Of, there's another book already. You wow. Know, in a couple of years. It's, it's quite crazy, really. Um, a big thing in there was in Mosul, I got a phone call off of a New York uh, film director asking to go to Mosul. Would I take him in? I'm like, no. You know, why do you want to go there? It's crazy. You, you know, you become a war tourist. Why do you want to go there? So we need to see what war's like for future projects and stuff. So we'll get in touch. We get Reuters uh, footage. Go to AFP. You don't need to go there. So this went on for about a week. Yeah. Then met them in London, had a chat with them. They said, look, name your price. I said, it's not about a price, it's about your safety. That's what I'm telling you, is you don't want to go to war. And they're like, we need to do this, we need to do that. Adamant. So if you don't take us, we get someone else. And I was like, oh. so I phoned up Dallas, who, who was my fixer. I said, can we get them with the police, the uh, militia police, and not go to the front line, but let them sort of, they're going to hear everything that's going on. It's still going to be dangerous, but it's not going to be the front line stuff. And he said, I'll get back to you. He sorted that out. So we flew out um, backwards and forwards for about three weeks, in and out of Mosul, between Erbil and Mosul. There was a lot going on, got some great footage. And towards the end, uh, the Special Forces, so was about to take the old city in the West. So I'd done my bonnet brief. I'd briefed the crew up and I said, guys, listen, I'm going to leave you with Dalsha and you're going to go back with the police commander. The HQ Villa where you're going, is known to friendly call signs, like air assets, the rest of it, you're okay down there. I'm happy for you to go with Dalsha and the police commander to that villa. It's about three or four K away from our RB. I will wear a GoPro camera, go forward with the special forces guys, and when the attack starts, I will get your footage for your documentary at a later date. If I end up getting banjoed, they'll end up sorting that out. I'll either get ex uh, repatriated or then leave me in situ, but you will find out, make your way back to a bill with Beck Dalsha on it. Said, if not, I will see you in a couple of days. And they're like, yeah, great, happy with that. So I phoned them every hour um, through the night, and then three o'clock in the morning where I was, the the whole world erupted as the offensive started. And uh, ISIS were giving back just as good as, <laughs> as uh, the coalition were giving them. And I mean, it went absolutely mental you'll see in a documentary the guy that got shot in the head next to me and uh, the round went straight down the middle didn't die just like a, on a flesh wound straight down the middle and you'll see wow. my hand patching him up um now you're in that documentary right in that in that film yeah, you're in that yeah yeah, yeah now, did you produce that or somebody else kind of produced no, that with you for the film director this is going to be something called contractors i'm not sure the release okay that'd be out i don't know what channel but that'll okay. be coming so, and I think I sent you, um, I think I sent you like a sizzle reel. Did I, you, you saw a I got that. 
Yeah, I received that. But um, anyway, these guys, and I kept phoning them still after the concept. They're moving forward. And I was saying, you're all right every hour. Yeah. Then um, just this first light come, probably about six, half six. Um, Dalsha phoned me and he's like, Gary, Gary. And I'm like, what is it? He said, the helicopter's attacking us. The helicopter's attacking us. And I'm looking up and I can see the Apache, uh, not, not the Apache, the hind, the attack helicopter doing strafing ones over us into the city. Above them was Apaches. Above them was fast there, you know, and I'm thinking, okay. Mm-hmm. I said, he's attacking uh, ISIS. You're okay. He said, no, <laughs> we have dead people on the roof. And I was like, well, what the fuck are you doing on the roof? And he said, we was up on the roof. I went, right, I ain't got time for that now. How many of our people are hurt? And he said, nobody. It's just Iraqis. I said, right, get down in the basement. Keep your body armor on. The body armor's in the car. <laughs> thinking... I've just briefed you, all of you, from Erbil for the last three weeks. Body armor on, boots on, vehicles ready to go, comms fully charged. Make sure you've got your water and stuff with you. Make sure you know where the ERVs are. All of this I've gone through with you. What the fuck are you doing on the roof? Anyway, they then went down into the basement. So I'm now thinking to myself, the helicopter pilots lit them up. He's now going to call in fast there, and they're going to blow the hell out of this villa. So I've had to make my way from the front line like with my little flag, get onto a Humvee, go to the headquarters, we'll have different headquarters, see the sergeant major, talk to the sergeant major through Dalsha to get the helicopter attack stopped. And I went to meet them at the ERV. And that, for me, was probably the lowest point of my security career because I felt, even though that I wanted to please people because they paid me good money and they wanted this documentary done, um, it wasn't feasible to take them forward. It, it would have been absolute suicide to take them any further forward. Um, it would have been a waste of their money coming out there. But you know what? Everyone, everybody would have been alive. My job is was to be their consultant, security consultant, medic, the camera thing. That's a nothing. That's an absolute nothing. You know, I fucked up there by trying to please a client rather than sticking to my own basic rules. You know, and uh, yeah, it was that was that was tough for me. A real tough time. Wow, that was a good story. I mean, a real story of saving lives, preserving lives in the middle of a, a crazy battle with coalition forces going against ISIL, ISIS, and who knows how many other terrorist organizations are on the ground supporting ISIS exactly. and keeping your sanity, and then you're with probably Delta Force, Navy SEALs, commandos from England, commandos from Russia, who, who knows who, you know? Yeah, it's funny. They're, they're, they're <laughs> might, I, I may have seen some guys out there that had, had accents very similar to yours. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know. Classified, right? I don't know. I don't know what I saw. <laughs> I Could have been on the radio. Not sure. <laughs> that's a good cover story. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, that's just just crazy. The stuff you've seen and the experiences. I mean, the raw experiences with all these journalists and and then interfacing with all these special forces, these teammates, and the, all these people. That I mean, that's such a rich that's a rich experience in life that most people are afraid to even go into. Yeah, you and know I'm very very grateful. Like I said to you earlier, um, careful what you wish for. Don't think that you're your 
some sort of guru, war guru, because you go to doing that. Because trust me, there's a lot of good people I know that get in. I've been injured. I got injured out in Afghanistan and that. Um, it's, but what it is, is my job is, I dare I say it, it it's like a drug. It's, it's, it's like an adrenaline. Why do so many soldiers, frontline soldiers, get in the shit when they come home? Because they can't get that back. Why do, is it so many journalists that are always the same journalists that go to conflicts. Why do they not mix it up? Why is it always the same people? Because they can't get enough of it. Um, you don't chase it. You don't chase it. But at the same time, you want it. You know, It's almost like they want to go for the dopamine hit and psychological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult one because mm. I say to people, about becoming a war tourist. You know, you don't want to become a war tourist. You know, that's just ridiculous getting yourself there. But I guess I am. I guess I'm a war junkie, if, if, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm that person that goes to war. Um, for me, in recent years, after an injury I received, um, there was some management that changed over in the UK. And that, unfortunately, I'm not getting used as much as I used to because of this new management. So... Yeah, if there's any guys out there in the States, documentary makers, journalists and all that, not that right. me to take them out, then give me a shout. But uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I know I know a lot of guys stateside now are, it's, it's quiet over in the Middle East right now. Not much going on. Uh, a lot of drawdowns. Just, just not spending any money over there because, you know, it's, it's political. And so a lot of guys stateside are bored pulling their thumbs and there's nothing going on around the States. And for goodness sakes, you have the companies that were embedded in the Middle East. They're now doing security work in the United States. Who would ever saw that coming? And so yeah. we have everybody sitting at home waiting for a phone call, which is not coming. And everybody yeah. shut down because of COVID-19. And everybody's hoping it breaks open and there's something to do. A lot of talented guys and girls out there that have medical background, triple canopy, Blackwater. And there's nothing to do right now. There's, it's just quiet. You know, it's like... Um... <laughs> There's a lot of guys that I'm seeing at the moment yeah. that seem to have, and no disrespect to any of you, I don't mean, but absolutely. <laughs> but they seem to have, when I look at their names, especially on LinkedIn, they, it's almost like they've got the alphabet after their name now. M-Sync, this, that, da, 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 and I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know, what, what is that shit? But that's that's where we're moving to now. It's all about arse covering and stuff like that. How good is your, uh, how good is your paperwork? Well, me, admin, Gasmin, computers, office, ain't happening. <laughs> At least you're honest about it. Not, it's not for me. You know, not for your strength. Me. Yeah. So that's just the way, you know, if that's the way that the industry is going and they require to it, you to have all of that accreditation, then so be it. That's the way it is. Um, but there will always be war. There will always be terrorism. There will always be, he doesn't like that person, they don't like that person, or that country, this country. And the way that I see it at the moment, after COVID, due to the amount of money and uh, debt that countries are going into, war and equipment makes money somewhere. Yes, it's expensive to run, but at the same time, it's all, it also incurs a lot of money coming in. I don't know, but looking at a lot of the intelligence that I see, certainly from East Coast to West Coast Africa, especially across the Central Band, 
all the way through. You, you see a lot of activity there. Um, again, I don't know this, so please don't take this as, as a given, but it wouldn't surprise me if that become the next uh, the next area of operations. Africa and the new hotspot? Yeah, possibly. possibly. Okay, possibly. makes sense. I've heard more stories by Associated Press covering incidents in different classified operations and missions going on in Africa than I have in the Middle East in the last three years. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, ISIS are on, on, on the rise out there, whatever they're, Al-Shabaab or whatever they're rolling as these days. You know, right. at the end of the day, it's it's not us against them. It's never on us against them. You know, I don't ever... I don't judge somebody for their belief. Right, you know? sure. I don't judge anybody for their belief, but what I do and can't sit back is innocence being hurt, injured and, and brainwashed, et cetera, et cetera. And what I saw with my own eyes with ISIS and what they did to their own people, et cetera, et cetera. And as I say, one of the rare times in 18 years that I actually had to fight was purely because I wasn't going to be on YouTube in an orange boiler suit saying that my government's this, my government's that, look, and then getting my head cut off. That's that's not happening. That ain't happening, you know. Um, Did you actually witness that stuff when you were there? Did you see that happening? I had two in, – on the east of the city, I came across uh, in the street two fighters with suicide vests on that were decapitated and had their heads put on their chest on, on the street. Now, whether that was uh, a command – sort of thing, uh, a, a fight in their inner command or whether the cowardice or whatever, but that was two two of their own. And I thought, hang about, really, you, you, you want to be hanging on to your fighter, surely, rather than cutting their heads off. But uh, that's what it was. Wow. Um, and the different types of torture that they had for people, it was it was barbaric. It was medieval. Very barbaric. Medieval. Yeah, it was... Um, it was just coming up with ideas. It was like think of an idea to help to kill somebody, and and then and then going with that. And uh, when you've got that sort of fanaticism about you, you definitely don't want to. You don't want to be sitting down having tea with them, you know. Absolutely not. Okay. And now these these spiders are coming from all over around the world. Everybody thinks they're just all coming from Iran, but they're coming around from all over the world helping them out. From my understanding, yeah, is that what you saw? Yeah, yeah, big, big time, big time. I see that in Libya. Um, I see that obviously in in, in Mosul, um, Ukraine as well. Mercenaries, you know, people will fight. That's what we do. You know, that's never going to change. It's never changed in any war, any right. war. True. You Good know, the people could say that about me when I was PSD. Was I a mercenary for the U.S. government? You yeah. know. We was out there. We we had carried a yellow card as such. The rules of engagement. We done exactly the same as the military. Yeah. Uh, so it's you know it is what it is. A government will do what it's got to do. In Libya at the moment, you've got the Wagner Group, which is Russian. Um, all sorts of stuff going on there. And I mean Wagner, you keep you see them keep appearing at every conflict that happens now. Mozambique. <laughs> You know, yeah. so the Russians, they're, they're very busy on that front, on the, the security front. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just... Um, so Russia's in getting involved in Africa too now? Yeah, yeah. Interesting, okay. I didn't know that. 
You're not hearing this from the news. The news yeah. is not reporting no. anything right now. No, but this is, um, well, I'll talk to you off camera a little bit, but yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. All right, Gary, thanks for your time. It was a pleasure. Gary is the author of Incoming, new book coming out in December. He's also in a documentary that's coming out too, uh, The Protected, right? Protectors? Uh, contractors. Contractors. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. thinking of Mike Trout's book, The Protected. <laughs> Sorry about that. But yeah, he's in that and a couple from that film and autobiography the book. So please pick it up on Amazon and be releasing sometime in December. And I'm sure uh, the audience will want Gary back. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to come back. Um, if I can, I'm just trying to expand. Again, this is because of the book before um, being insecurity is all about low profile and all the rest of it. And you don't want to be bigger than your reporter, especially because some of them, believe it or not, are a little bit lovey. And if you're <laughs> more popular than them, they don't like it. Um, but well I, if I can get people to follow on my social media, Facebook, Instagram, that's Gary Curtis, two hours in Gary. Or if it's on Twitter, that's Gary Curtis 17. So it's Gary Curtis 1717 as in number. Okay. And I'll be following Gary on my Instagram. On Instagram, I'm, I'm at Mark David Ludlow. On Instagram, I'm on Twitter as well. But if you want to follow me, I'll be following Gary. You can see all this, all the podcasts he's doing right now and the uh, pushing of the book and the, uh, the film that's coming out too. So uh, please keep in touch with him. And if you want to have him as a guest, reach out to him or uh, reach out to me and love to help Gary out. And we're going to finish this recording so we can talk offline. One, two, and three. Thanks, Gary. And thanks, everybody, for watching.